The text for this morning is Luke chapter 9, 57 through 62. We'll read that section once more. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. After the sermon, we will respond to the proclamation of the gospel of salvation with Psalm 89, stanzas 1, 16, and 17. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as human beings, we have a natural tendency to cling to the things that are close and familiar to us, to the things that, that we know are, are pleasant. And it can take quite a bit for us to let go of those things and, and spring forward in trust for for something else, we really have to believe that the thing that we're going to lay hold of is worth it, that that, that is the better thing. It might be something like, you know, quitting a very secure job that you have, a job that's okay, it gives you what you need, but you know that you should be heading down some different path, taking that first step, letting go of this and, and springing for that. Cutting off, cutting yourself off from that kind of security and familiarity and, and being in that state of limbo, that's very disconcerting. We don't like that feeling. But if you truly believe that, that the other thing must be sought and pursued, then you're able to let go of what you have now. And as I was writing this, I was reminded of a, a scene in a particular film when the character whose name was Chuck, he was stranded on this island for, for about four years. And he's on this raft in the middle of the ocean and he has this volleyball with, with a face that he painted on it. And this has been his only companion for these last four years. And this volleyball has fallen off the raft and it was drifting away, floating away. And Chuck dives into the ocean to try to retrieve his buddy. And he's holding on to the rope that's connected to the raft. And he gets to a certain point where he gets to the end of the rope and he knows that at this point he has to pick. He can't hang on to this rope and be connected to his raft and pursue the volleyball. If he goes for his buddy, then this he has to leave behind. And it was a very poignant 
very emotional scene that he had to make that decision there. And this is one of the great obstacles for those who have become resolved to follow Jesus Christ. We're not willing to let go of some of the things in our lives that can distract us from what we should be doing, from what should be the greatest goal and purpose in our lives, being a disciple of Christ, being a faithful servant in the kingdom of God. But if we're utterly convinced, if we're completely convinced that the kingdom of God is as important as we believe it is, that the kingdom of God is everything, then by God's grace we can, we can strip off, we can throw away whatever entangles, whatever hinders us in the work that God has given us to do. We can rejoice and we can, we can flourish in the middle of our discomforts and difficulties. We can understand what is the most important thing in this life. And we can be completely focused on faithfully and trustfully doing what God, our God, puts in front of us. And so we'll see this morning, what is the truth about following Jesus Christ? And we'll see three aspects. We'll see, number one, it means embracing discomfort. Secondly, it means reorganizing priorities. And third, it means concentrating our commitment. So first, following Christ means embracing discomfort. So Luke has been bringing us along in the ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And as he's doing this, we hear the same question being asked over and over again, especially as we come to this point. And this question is, who is Jesus? We saw it first when he healed the paralytic in chapter 5, verse 21. He pronounced this man's sins forgiven. And the leaders ask, who is this? Who is this who is speaking blasphemies? Human beings aren't allowed to pronounce sins forgiven. And then last time in chapter 7, verse 49, when, when he forgave the sins of the sinful woman, the guests ask again, who is this who is able to forgive sins with authority? What kind of person is this? And then we see in chapter 8, verse 25, Jesus calms the storm by speaking to it. And the disciples in the boat are amazed, and they ask the same question. Who is this? Who is this who can even command the storms, the wind, and the waves, and they, and they obey him? And then it reaches a pitch here in chapter 9. First we see in verse 9, Herod, King Herod hears about all of the things that Jesus is doing, and, and the people believe that Jesus is John the Baptist, come back from the dead, resurrected. And Herod asks, who is this? Who then is this that I'm hearing all of these things about? He knows that he had beheaded John the Baptist. Chapter 9, verses 18 through 20, Jesus himself asks his disciples, 
who do the crowds say that I am? And they answer that some people think he's John, some people think Elijah or one of the other prophets. And Jesus says, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And, and then there we have Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the Messiah of God. And that is confirmed for us. When they're on the mountain, Jesus is transfigured. He speaks with Moses and Elijah. They speak to him about his work, about his ascension. And then what happens after all these questions, after so many people asking, who is this? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? A voice from heaven, a voice from the clouds says in answer to this question, this is my son. I have chosen him. Listen to him. Well, can you imagine the excitement that there must have been, especially for those disciples who were part of his inner circle, the twelve, those closest to Christ, and even for the rest of the followers of Christ, to be associated with the Messiah, about whom God had said, this is my son, to be associated with him is a big deal. And that must mean pretty good things for you, right? You can just imagine the kind of pleasant life that comes when, when you're associated with a great human being. If you're connected to a rich and powerful person, if you're part of this person's entourage, you're going to have a good life. If he eats in nice restaurants, you're going to eat in nice restaurants. If, if he enjoys certain protections from, uh, from whatever uh, threats or, or dangers or pressures, if he enjoys protection from these things, you're going to enjoy protection from those things. Honor and respect that are paid to this rich and powerful person are also paid to you because of your association with him and because you act and you speak in his name. How much more would that be for those who are closely connected to the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ? Well, at this point, Jesus is teaching his followers that actually the life of the Messiah isn't what one would think. He's already primed his disciples for this right after Peter's confession in 9 verse 22. Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. So instead of having this, this comfortable and cushy life, he says, no, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, by the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. And then he follows this up in verse 23, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and then lose or forfeit his very self? Jesus is drawing a line in the sand here. He's, he's pitting against each other these two ideas. Number one, a, a love for this life, commitment to the things of this life, and on the other hand, a life with him. These are going to pull in opposite directions. And he's beginning to teach here what that life with him looks and feels like. It's, it's not always pleasant. 
the tendency for his disciples is to focus on the really good stuff, right? When Jesus sent out the twelve in the first part of chapter 9, he gave them incredible power. He gave them authority. The ability to cure diseases, to cast out demons, to preach the kingdom of God. And that's an awesome task. And there's no doubt that, that these disciples were held in very high honor because of the work that they were doing, because of the authority that they had. And we can see how this escalates right before our text in verses 46 through 56. They're arguing about who is the greatest. And, and when they're met with, with this uh, episode of rejection by the Samaritan village, they're offended. How dare they reject Jesus Christ? Or maybe they're thinking too, how dare you reject us? You've seen the authority that we have. Let's call down fire from heaven and wipe these people out. But Jesus teaches them. He stops them. He teaches them more about what it means to be the Messiah and what it means to follow him. It's not about having power. It's not about having comfort in this life. It's not about being well-received. It's about doing the will of God, about doing the will of the one who sends you. Jesus showed this in verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, he set his face toward Jerusalem. He resolutely set himself toward Jerusalem. And we have to think about what that means. Jesus knew what was waiting for him in Jerusalem. The worst kind of rejection awaited him. The worst suffering, a horrible death, being forsaken by his father. And he set his face toward it. He aimed for that. This is what was required of the Messiah. And similar things are required of us, his followers. In verse 57, a man says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And this is a good thing to desire, right? Following Christ, following his example, being connected to him. But Jesus wants him to understand what it is he's really requesting. Be careful what you wish for. What does Jesus reply in verse 58? Verse 58, Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Life is really comfortable and, and pleasant and enjoyable when you're surrounded by a community that has accepted you, a community that loves you, but, but what if all that was taken away? Would we still be enthusiastic about the work that we were doing? This man sees how, how the crowds adore Jesus and his followers. What he doesn't see is the hard side of it. There's a lot of rejection. Jesus was rejected in his own, in his own hometown in Nazareth, the town of, of Gerasa. They tell him he's not welcome there. That's the place where, 
where Jesus cast, it out, cast out legion, that, that horde of demons, and, and they went into the pigs there. Samaria refuses to let him stay there. Jerusalem wants him dead. Heaven itself forsakes him. Are we willing to face that kind of discomfort as a follower of Christ? When I was a candidate, I had received a, a call to serve as a missionary in Papua New Guinea. And to be completely honest, one of the really attractive things about the possibility of working there, the possibility of ministering there, was the fact that true preachers of the gospel are so well received. They love preachers there. Missionaries are held in such high honor. And that was an attractive thing. But I had to ask myself too, how uncomfortable am I willing to be for the sake of the kingdom of God? Am I willing to be rejected? How far am I willing to follow Jesus Christ? Am I okay with being rejected and, and hated even by members of the community that I'm serving? We have to keep this in mind, especially as our own country becomes more and more hostile to Christianity. We have laws right here in Edmonton that, that we're going to have to contend with. Laws concerning how we view sexuality. Laws that would dictate how, as pastors and and as elders, how we would counsel and, and pray for those who, who have struggles or, and confusion about things like that. We have to speak truthfully about the holiness of God, the sanctity of marriage, a, the God-honoring use of sexuality. And we have to be able to do this boldly and courageously without fear of rejection and, and hatred. Are you willing to sit in a university classroom as a student and, and while the professor is sharing the, the latest ideas on things like gender fluidity and, and sexual transitioning and everyone in the new room is nodding and, and agreeing, are you willing to face the discomfort of having everybody believe that you're a bigot, even though you're not, but that's what they'll think? They'll think that you're stuck in the past, that, that you're not compassionate, that you don't love, that you're full of hatred. Whatever false conclusions they might form about you. Can you hold up Christ to our culture and speak about how he is restoring all of this brokenness? The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. There's nowhere on earth that he's welcome. He's willing to forego all kinds of comforts in order to do the will of his Father. My will is to do the will of him who sent me. Those are his words in Psalm 40. Jesus' words are words of warning for all of us who would follow him. Be prepared for discomfort. But the wonderful and, and the amazing thing about all of this is that God blesses us in 
and even through these discomforts when they come because we follow Christ. And the glory that follows, the glory that follows by far outweighs our present unpleasantness. Let's look at the second interaction in our text, the verses 59 and 60, and that's our second point, that following Christ means reorganizing priorities. Jesus is the one who starts this next conversation. He says to an unnamed man, follow me. And we see there that the man asks for permission to, before following Christ, let me first go and bury my father. And there's something that we should all understand about this, this man's request. Of all the possible excuses or reasons to delay following Christ, this man has the best one, the best one possible. Burying a family member, especially one's own father, this is the highest expression of honor and respect and love that you could have for your parents. Burying parents was a chief duty for a devout Jew. Funeral duties were extremely important. They were worth becoming ritually unclean over. Remember, if you had contact with a, with a dead body, with a corpse, then by law you were unclean, ritually unclean, for a certain amount of time. And this was acceptable, and this was expected. And let's remember to be human beings here for a second, too. This man's father had just died or was on the brink of death. He was on his deathbed. It's impossible to imagine, you know, what on earth could possibly keep me from my own father's funeral when that day comes. And, you know, it's really sad to think right now that that this actually happens for us today in our present circumstances. This is a reality for people that their loved one has passed away and and because of the traveling and gathering restrictions that, that we experience right now, you can't attend the funeral of your mom or your dad or or another loved one. And so it's our prayer that God may grant an end to, to, to all of this very soon. But to, to willingly stay away, to willingly stay away from your own father's funeral, that would have to be the most important thing in the world, right? Well, this is what Jesus is teaching here. He, he says to this man, he's, you've, you've brought the best possible excuse, the best possible excuse, but it's not good enough. Jesus says to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And and this means something like, let those who are spiritually dead take care of dead affairs. But as for you, if you are part of this kingdom, you need to do kingdom stuff. Those who are stuck to this world, who cling to this world, whose only existence is bound up in the affairs of this world, let them look after these things. But but you're being called to something else, a 
a royal position with royal tasks. And this can't be stressed enough. This can't be stressed enough. There is nothing more important in all human existence than the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. That's it. The work that that Christ was doing, especially at that time in his work of, of heading for his cross, there was the highest urgency for that. But this is still the case today. Christ is still at work. He is gathering his church. This is the continuation of his work with Christ seated in heaven, presiding over these things that are on earth. He is in the midst of putting all things under his feet, and he has given the keys of the kingdom to his church, that is, to the elders. The work that Jesus is doing, he is doing through you. You have the most important calling, the most important office in the world, and that is the office of Christian follower and a member of Christ. It's more important than being a prime minister, a member of parliament, an earthly king, a president, whatever it is. Your office as Christian is more important. We can consider Elisha's example this morning. When Elijah called him, We read that he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, that he himself was driving the 12th pair. And this means that he was a really important guy on his parents' farm. He was the foreman of a team of workers plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. And his family must have been pretty well-to-do, and that means that Elisha stood to inherit a very sizable inheritance But when Elijah threw his cloak around him, he responded immediately. He was done with all of that. I want to follow Elijah. He killed the oxen. He burned the equipment in order to cook the meat, in order to feed the people. And then he took off. He left it all behind. The kingdom of God was more important than any of that. And that doesn't mean that we forsake everything having to do with this world. It's not that we must suddenly have nothing to do with it. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. Jesus doesn't permit this man to go and and bury his father and follow him. It would be a mistake for us to draw the same identical line. That was true for him, right? And that's because Jesus looks into our hearts, every one of our hearts. Jesus finds our idols and tells us to throw our particular idols away. We can't put down, we may not put down the legitimate responsibilities that that God has already given to us. Responsibilities that you have as, as students in school. We're doing schoolwork at home now. You have been given tasks and you must 
do them faithfully to the honor and glory of God, you are doing kingdom work. You're being prepared for later and, and other kingdom work in this. Your daily vocation, you're contributing to the well-being of the church, right? You're supporting mission, you're feeding the needy, supporting the ministry of mercy. You're caring for children, being a faithful husband, a loving wife. All of this is kingdom work. But we have to keep that in view. How am I serving Christ and his kingdom through what I am doing daily? What more can I do as I follow my teacher and my Lord, Jesus Christ? Is it possible that he's also calling me to another task? Or he's calling me to, to, to a different task? Is he calling me to, to serve as an office bearer? Is he calling me to, to visit more elderly people in the congregation? Is he calling me to, to be engaged politically? for example, by, by writing as, as a Christian, as a concerned Christian citizen to our local representatives. How am I proclaiming the kingdom of Christ? How am I serving the king? Jesus Christ has given us his Holy Spirit in order to equip us for this work in his kingdom. We're all commanded by Christ to recognize, to recognize what is most important and to pursue it without wavering. And that's our third point. Too. Following Christ means concentrating our commitment to him. Now you've probably noticed the differences and, and the similarities between the call of Elisha and the last example in our text. Elisha was very eager to go with Elijah, but he still wanted to kiss his mom and dad goodbye. And then he would go. And Elijah says, you know, go ahead. I'm, I'm not stopping you. And it's different with this last man. This fellow in, in Luke chapter 9, he says, I'll follow you. But let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And it's very similar to what we saw Elisha do. But unlike Elijah, Jesus has a problem with this. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, obviously, we shouldn't conclude from this that Elisha was unfit for service in the kingdom of God. That's unthinkable. No, there seems to be a number of things happening here. In the first place, Elisha responds with conviction and excitement without an ounce of hesitation at all. He's, he's already here at home on the farm with his family, and he shows that he is eager to leave this behind in order to take up his prophetic work following Elijah. And there's Nothing wrong with him joyfully kissing his parents before he leaves. In our text, Jesus is probably acknowledging that, that this man still has one foot out the door. His focus is divided. 
he's still far too concerned about what he might be leaving behind. And Jesus, Jesus fleshes that out. Jesus exposes that in his heart. And also, the last consideration is, Jesus is leaving now. We can see that from the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 8, that when this discourse happens, he's already given the order to get in the boats and cross the Sea of Galilee. We're leaving. It's now or never. We're not going to wait for you. This whole thing calls to mind what happened with Demas. That was Paul's companion in his, in his work. He was excited for the work, but Paul says he became too concerned with earthly things, with earthly connections, earthly relationships, whatever it was, and he lost his desire for the kingdom of Christ. People of God, followers of Jesus Christ, Christians. The things that we heard today, how serious it is, how difficult it is to actually follow Jesus Christ. This is a heavy thing to expect and demand of any one of you. In truth, the things that are being asked of you and demanded of you, these things are impossible for you. None of us in our own strength can have the sight, the lack of blindness to see the beauty of the kingdom of God and to think it worthy of pursuit and leave behind the things that we see with our own eyes, the things that are desirable and good in this life. It's impossible for us to do this, to make this choice. That we would be able to consider all of these things in our lives as nothing compared to the kingdom of God. To be willing to endure all kinds of discomfort and hardship to make sacrifices for the sake of Christ. To be Christ-like. You know, he, Jesus Christ didn't even cling to the comfort and the glory of heaven itself. He came to do the will of the Father, which for him meant not just making sacrifices, but, but giving, giving his life itself, his own life. Suffering the curse of God so that we wouldn't have to. What a Lord we have. This is how our salvation was secured, that Christ was willing to do the will of the Father, to suffer the things that he suffered for our sake. We can't do what he did, but, but he calls you to believe that, that what he did was for you. And now he calls you to follow him we confess that we are sinful people who, who cling to this world. If we walk according to the flesh, this world is all that we can know. How can we possibly release our hold on, on these things for something we haven't seen?
but we know that this, this is the wonder and the miracle of belonging to Christ. Right? We can give thanks to God because of the spiritual mind that he gives us. He's transformed us from earthly beings into spiritual ones who are able to recognize and understand the things of the Spirit of God. We can recognize the beauty and luster and the preeminence of the kingdom of God. We're able to adore Christ and be full of the highest joy and love for the work that he's given us to do. This is God's doing. This is his grace. This is a real and supernatural transformation that God is working in us and among us. We have to depend on him constantly for this gift, for this grace, for him to supply us with hearts that are committed to this work. Followers of Christ, Christians, your king has given you orders from his throne. And you have to seek to understand what it is that he has called you to do. And consider that, whatever it is, consider that to be the most important thing in this world. And pray that you are given the ability to have singular focus for that. And be assured, God will grant that you are able to do these things because it's him who strengthens you by his own power and by his own authority. Amen.